Hello, hello. Welcome to this King Heroes Journey podcast. I have the great pleasure of being here with Mr. Ian McKenzie, who is a filmmaker and the host of Mythic Masculine. I know it always takes a few minutes or so to to get people on, so I'm going to delay really fully introducing you and we can just chat a little bit. Welcome, Ian. It's so great sure. to have you here. Mm, yeah, thanks for having me, Beth. It was interesting. I, I think for some reason, maybe you guys found me that I, somebody reached out and, and uh, showed me your work and I started mm-hmm. to listen to your podcasts and think like, oh my God, this guy is so on the same page as I am. We came to it through different ways and some similar ways too. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty interested mm-hmm. to see. Uh, this is a relatively new project for you. The mythic masculine? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I've been a filmmaker for over 13 years. And uh, I believe I initially found you because you'd interviewed one of my main teachers, Stephen Jenkinson. Ah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so it's good to connect those dots. Yeah, yeah. So because um, I, like I said, I've been doing films for over 13 years, mostly documentaries. Mm-hmm. And um, I make I've made films largely on emergent culture. So um, yeah, I could get into it, but maybe I should hold off or, or is this a no, good way? For, for that sake, yeah, yeah, definitely talk about your, your film filmmaking, how you uh, how you came to this. A few people sure. are showing up in the chat. Mark and Lynn, hello to you. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I, I really came to film because I understood it to be in early days, or at least in my kind of creative um, development, uh, that it was the most effective way to shift culture. Um, and I still believe that, that I think film has the capacity to shift, you know, mass perception um, quicker than any other medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I began looking at different ways in which I could, you know, consciously apply that. So whether it was um, working on a film called Occupy Love, which followed the first year of the Occupy movement, the film was co-directed or directed by a Velcro Ripper. Um, and I supported that film, uh, which really unified activism and spirituality. That was that thread that we think we found really strongly that's in the Occupy movement and beyond mm-hmm. uh, to more recently um, Amplify Her, which was a project on women in electronic music, which was really looking actually about the, the rise of the feminine, but through feminine archetypes as they express through, you know, these DJs who have, you know, a kind of persona that is sort of beyond, um, uh, it's, like a, it's like a creative persona, but also like um, certain superpowers, you know, like I was going to say that exact word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the project was expanded to include a graphic novel and a motion comic series where we actually took their stories and projected them into like alternate realms. Mm-hmm. So it really it was a kind of, I don't know, creative explosion that a lot of uh, a lot of incredibly talented women worked on. Um, and it was through that journey of the feminine archetypes that, of, of course, I then realized, oh, wow, I know so little about the masculine uh, at the time that I was about 35. And so that launched my journey starting to study the masculine archetypes. And there's a story about how I found you know, that path. But it was really that, like really going into the feminine first and then realizing, oh, wait, I knew so little. And, and that launched me back into the masculine, which then led to the Mythic Masculine podcast. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. You, it seems like the the two archetypes are really not one and the same, but they're inseparable. I always see them as a kind of yin yang. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you can't do one without the other. It's it's going to come. There will come a point where you can't go any further without sure. actually going deeper. So it's it's very yeah. cool. Um, so yeah, you've, you've talked a little bit about, it sounds like in 2012, you had a burning man experience. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, burning man, I mean, you know, I encountered it first in 2009 and it was pre, you know, like you couldn't get any internet on the playa. Uh, and so it was still relatively, you know, obscure. Like, I think I would say, you know, if I told somebody at the time, 
hey, I'm going to this thing called Burning Man, you know, I'd say nine out of 10 would not have understood what I meant. Like they would, they would be, oh, what's that? Whereas certainly I think now, you know, um, 10 years on that most people I think know what, what it is, or at least a loose idea. Totally. Um, and so in some ways the mystique has sort of faded away, but uh, certainly for me at the time, I went six years in a row. It was mm -hmm. that significantly kind of altering to my trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, and I think ultimately what I found was, I mean, deep inspiration about, you know, what, how, how human culture could be, you know, from this um, kind of palette of the, the dust and, and um, storms and the rest. And also at the same time, I think I found a, a kind of limitation, though, which was, you know, I, I mentioned um, Stephen Jenkinson earlier, but um, he, he said this one time, not, not about Burning Man, but something I really stuck with me. He said uh, that any reaction to something always creates a twin not a true alternative. Mm. Oh, and, about that, please. Yeah, and so that's, I think, what I found there, which was that, you know, Burning Man, I recognized a few years in, uh, as fantastical as it was, and as deeply, creatively, you know, um, just uh, beautiful, uh, it was also very much bound to the dominant culture. So you could see it almost as everything that the dominant culture shuns or makes taboo or all the rest, right? Burning Man was the place where it was like, no, you can bring that. It's all, it's all okay, right? Mm -hmm. But in some ways, that also makes it utterly dependent upon the dominant culture. Um, because again, like they mirror each other. They're just like opposites, ah, um, right? Mm -hmm. But it didn't really create an alternative sustainable culture, right? In the way that I then came to understand culture as like, basically, I would say real culture is undeniably sustainable. Like, I think that's what actually makes it a true culture because, you know, like um, indigenous peoples that have lived, you know, thousands and thousands of years, that's what real culture looks like. Mm -hmm. um, I would say from the dominant culture is really a kind of coping with the absence of culture, um, mm -hmm. which again, it sounds like, you know, kind of like what? To say it a little blunt, um, this is something that Steve had, had spoken to strongly, just to say that, you know, so much of our lives are lived in the absence of the ways in which we used to live, you know, for most of human history. And so a lot of things that are actually diagnosed as personal, right, or like personal issues or, um, you know, they're, they're kind of like seen only in the context of the individual are actually kind of an intelligent longing for village, right, for an interdependent um, way of being, which, again, it was like it, that is our DNA, not to live independently as these, you know, solo uh, individuals. So anyway. Yes. yes, that's actually a huge part of my message in platform as well. That yeah. uh, even purpose does not exist on your own. It, if, mm -hmm. you're, if you're in a vacuum, there is no purpose. It will be empty. It doesn't matter how creative and, uh, you know, how much you produce. If, if yeah. it's not connected to people, then, then sure. it's really a big fat nothing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I love that, that, uh, that your, your focus, that your dive with your film into the, the, the feminine. And, uh, and you've got some of my favorites here. Marion Woodman was a huge influence to me. You and I are just meeting, actually, so you won't know that I'm a cancer survivor. And she held some of oh, the, wow. the important keys to me when I was uh, fighting for my life 20 years ago about uh, wow. about addiction and about being born and what it means to abort your own spirit and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that was that was great wow. work. Yeah. And, then, and then you talk about your in the spring of 2015 when your grandfather died. Do you want to mm -hmm. do you want to say how that influenced you? I had a similar thing when my father died. Okay, well, yeah, I'll say that um, actually it was both my grandfathers died within months of each other, um, which, you know, was a synchronicity coincidence. But um, for me, what it really was, was this threshold of both my grandfathers, you know, leaving this world. And um, they both lived very different lives. So one very much was the kind of home, 
you know, family was paramount. Um, you know, he died in the home that he built, um, you know, surrounded by his loved ones. Mm-hmm. Whereas my That's other cool. grandfather, yeah, my other grandfather was very much like the seeker. So he was out in the world. He had, I mean, he had a number of children. And at the same time, he was very drawn into, you know, finding truth, capital T. And so um, we were relatively estranged for most of my life with him until I sought him out when I was around 25 because I was just like, okay, who's this guy? I got to find him. Mm-hmm. And I did. And we had a actually really beautiful connection. Um, and then we kind of dropped off again and, and, you know, stayed loosely in touch until around 2015 when, yeah, he, I got word that he was close to dying and, and soon after did. And I was um, both one of the family members. His son also um, headed to where he lived somewhat um, away from the Vancouver, like, um, you know, many hours uh, in the interior. And when we went to his place to tend to his things, I, I found that he had reams of books and, and books and all different types of books, like floor to ceiling, right? Like metaphysics and philosophy and relationships and culture and religion. And like, you know, you barely walk in there. It was not like it was, um, wasn't hoarding. It was very meticulously organized, but it was just very much like clearly he was on a path. And um, what I found in the, in the, amongst the materials when we were packing it up and organizing um, in a somewhat auspicious place uh, was kind of, you know, perfectly, I felt placed at hand level, uh, a copy of Iron John by Robert Bly. And I'd heard of the book, you know, vaguely. This is around the time, again, I was getting curious about, wait, what is it about the masculine that, you know, I, I really don't know about? And a friend had recommended, hey, you got to read this book. And, you know, scarcely a month later, there it was, you know, in my grandfather's study. And so I took it as a sign, you know, clearly saying, okay, time to read the book. And uh, I was, you know, profoundly impacted by what I felt was a clear articulation of so much of what I was going through at that time um, that, you know, provoked two things. One was... A sense of like, wow, uh, being seen, being sort of provided a map, right, of the psyche of the of the journey that I had been on, which had felt somewhat isolating, right, and alone. Am I the only one going through this? And then the other piece was almost like, oh, wait, so I'm not a unique snowflake, you know, like like it, that is possible that this is a pattern that you know men in particular go through and is recognizable. So it was almost that re- relinquishing this idea of my you know individual uniqueness, you know completely into oh wow actually there's some mentorship here and and men had um had paved uh, a path right into this territory that had largely been underground though right for me i was again i was 35 at the time and i hadn't really heard much about this um i think now you know a few years later we're going through a resurgence of what i would probably call the second wave of the mythopoetic movement uh, of which yeah like clarissa pinkoli estes and and yeah marion woodman and bly and michael mead all of them were part of this first wave and and then it kind of went underground. You know, I've talked to others in this time and they say, yeah, you know what? They had things to learn. They had to be humbled by, um, you know, where was the movement? I'm just speaking more of the men's side, but where was the movement appropriating, you know, from indigenous cultures and not really understanding, you know, the context of their own ancestral reclamation, which was so vital. Uh, and so there was a kind of humbling and, and a sort of going underground like to earth which I've heard these uh, men in that time say that they had to go through. And now it's resurging again. Um, you know, people like, uh, I mean, Mankind Project, of course, is one that does a lot of good work on this. Sacred Sons is sort of a younger offshoot. And, you know, like this whole archetypal language is is coming into a resurgence. And so for me and the podcast, I've really tried to kind of like link the generations, you know, so so there isn't this like, hey, we're inventing the wheel again. You know, that, that there's a lot of things have been figured out. A lot of mistakes were made. But can we link the generation so they learn and then they can take it even further now? 
Mm -hmm. Beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm super into archetypes. So that's, yeah. that's the, the basis for uh, my work and my book as well. Awesome. So very good. And how is my sound, by the way? Thanks, Dixie. I got your message. Is it any better now? Can you hear me more? I assume, Ian, you're hearing me fine. Yeah, it sounds clear from, from my end. Yeah. yeah, it's a perfect mix in my sound, but uh, just let me know if you guys are hearing me any better. little mystery there. <clears throat> and uh, so in this work, what, what do you find to be the, you haven't necessarily talked about this in the, in the present tense yet, but are there things that you find a struggle about your work? Is it, uh, is it, is it a hero's journey? Is it something that you feel like you're, you're off on a limb and God's telling you to do this and, and, uh, you're, you're, uh, you know, running into the demons and the dragons that pop up on that path? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, the reason I started the podcast too, largely, was because I did feel that there wasn't enough conversation in this realm, um, particularly again around the masculine. I, I didn't see many options out there, um, and and this capacity to use mythology and to use story, because I think otherwise, I think Bly talks about this. It's the um, you know, so much of the modern mind is collapsed and, and has become very literal. Right, like it's there isn't as much capacity to to use myth or, or metaphor or symbol in a way that um, in kind of creates meaning, mm -hmm. right? And so, in the absence of that, yeah, all we have is this sort of like rational, um, intellectual, reductionist paradigm uh, that you know kind of like de demystifies the world and makes it seem knowable, as if you know, oh yeah, you know, we get this now. Uh, you know, the sun, you know, it's just a machine, like all these kind of hangovers from from the industrial or the enlightenment and the industrial revolution, which sort of kind of removes spirit from matter. And so I think the consequence of that is that people, again, feel this lack of meaning. Like there's this one hand, a kind of technological utopianism, which is spouted as, you know, the way and, um, you know, here we go, AI and, you know, head to Mars. And like, that's that's what's worth doing. And I think a lot of people are feeling a bit like, wait a second, you know, um, is that really the path that is most in service to, you know, even the human experience and also to the life itself? You know, this sort of like, you know, Earth needs us to be a lot more mm, reciprocal in our relationship. Um, but myth and story really creates the possibility. Um, and also, I'd say the biggest challenge I found is around not having the right language or at least coming up against language that just I, I find is really limiting. So for example, toxic masculinity is used a lot. And I think purposely to you bring about certain awareness on behaviors, which are, you know, very problematic, right? Like violence against women, um, you know, sexual violence, um, trespass, all these things are really necessary to name. But I just find like this, the, the dualism around, you know, toxic masculine and like good masculine um, doesn't really give much nuance, right? About, you know, like a lot of men are sort of like, okay, I get it. I don't want to be that, but they don't know where to go, right? There's no sense of, of an invitation into some other story. And so I think that's why so much of what I try to do is, as well is tap into these old myths, um, these old mythologies to kind of revisit them again with a modern context and to say, hey, wait a second, you know, there's something in here which isn't prescriptive. You know, it's not like, okay, you know, be a good man, you do X, Y, Z. You know, it's never that simple in a sense but you know myth is beyond prescription it's beyond um like reductionist um moralism you know like they're they're lively and they're um quixotic and and vital i think for us to begin to yeah to 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 find different ways forward mm -hmm. yeah it's fascinating these times are are pressing us to 
um, to find our way. It's all it's always been the case, and it, I think more than ever now, people are grasping out at uh, leaders and solutions and looking to someone like, please tell me the way out of this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, worldwide tyranny that we're facing and. Uh, you know all the legal traps of our our name and how we were sold off at birth and I don't know if you've gone down that that exact rabbit hole but uh, mm. but every time we turn to uh, a leader the less, the lesson is exactly the same thing and it's that actually you need to turn to yourself it's between you and and God and it is like you're talking about an extremely organic process that doesn't come with a list of instructions. Like I used to joke with my son when he was a baby and say that, uh, you know, I got the rule book, but you didn't get the rule book, mm. right? He didn't, he didn't get it. So he wasn't following. <laughs> mm. I, I could have all these, this logical instructions in my head, but uh, it, mm. it, you know, I was always working with a living, breathing being in, in lifetime. So that's, uh, uh -huh. we're always in that place. And, and the mythology is what is so powerful to inform us, but not instruct us. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're then left to have to synthesize and take it in and, and, uh, and make our choices based on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and was there ever a time in your career where you had a total knock them down crash? Kings tend to be under a lot of stress. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, how, if you're, if you have a family or if you're married, if you have your own children and mm -hmm. doing your own work and all that kind of thing. So was there was there a time when you crashed and how did you get to the other side? Assuming you did, because you're here with us now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what comes to mind certainly is, you know, again, funnily enough, feels like exactly or, or named in Iron John, which is, yeah, typically around 35 that he says, um, men go through what, what's called the road of ashes, right? The road of ashes, which is essentially all of their best intents about who they are or who, they, you know, what they intended to be and all the, the dreams and the ideas, you know, come crashing down. Um, and again, it takes usually around that time because I think when, when people get shot out of high school in this culture, um, you know, some, some people go on to travel, you know, they spend a year, the gap year, uh, some go right into university. I did a little bit of both. I did a couple years of university and then I was like, wow, I don't know anything about what I'm supposed to be doing. So then I took a year. I spent most of a year in Australia and then I came back and, and finished school and um, and then just kind of, you know, went into life as most uh, do again in this culture and uh, met a woman, you know, beautiful relationship, um, got married a few years later. And um, it was around 30, you know, like 32, 33 in which, I mean, it's a, it's a complex and long story, but suffice to say that um, I would say the horizons in which I wanted to um, expand into and, you know, edges I wanted to explore were, were just beyond, I think, what she was, she desired and, and was really wanted, you know, capable of. And so that led to a sort of catastrophic ending of that marriage. Uh, and I will say that, you know, the, I, I didn't, I mean, it was not something I anticipated would happen, you know, in the exploration. I, I just thought, you know, we, we were elastic to the sense of, you know, we could go places because we had such a deep level of trust. And at the same time, it really just, it's not, it expanded so much that it, it broke. And I've never quite experienced that level of devastation, um, you know, which, which in a way came on after the fact, uh, more so, you know, that in the years after. And I actually had a friend around that time when um, she had also been divorced now, maybe I think around six or seven years at that point. And she said, um, I was about two years after the divorce. And she said, you know, the gold from my divorce only came in about five years in. 
like five years later. Like, so whatever it is that, you know, I was already deciding why it ended and what, what the lessons were and all this stuff. And she was kind of like, okay, you know, sure. Maybe there's some things, but you know, wait a little because more gold may come, you know, if, if I was willing not to decide why it happened and, and listen. And so I think that's true. So I think that that really, um, I mean, it, it created for me a sense of, um, yeah, like, a, like everything burned down that I thought was me, right? That I thought that was um, what my life was. You know, I had a life in those suburbs and the picket fence and the dog and all that. Um, and, you know, now here we are about uh, seven or eight years later. Uh, and I am with a partner and we do have a two-year-old son, actually. Um, and, and, you know, I'm grateful to say that we're in quite a dance in our story as well. But certainly all the things that were learned from that previous um, road of ashes, I think, have shown up, you know, in in this relationship, and and hopefully the best ways. And a lot of these questions for me as well are very alive, certainly with a two year old son, right? Like, what does it mean to be to raise a boy in this culture, and you know, how am I alert to the ways in which the conditioning of the culture wants to circumvent, you know, what what I see as this innate joyfulness, you know, innate capacity to be with the the weather of emotions and and not suppress, and but also not sort of be given free reign, you know, to, to where do boundaries come in? You know, all these things are really alive for me right now. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Having children changes the playing field altogether. Yeah. 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 It's, it's fascinating to, to have, you know, to go back and there was, of course I would never send my son back, but uh, just, just looking at the, the world that we, that I've brought him into. And that, that was actually a reason not to have kids hmm. seeing to some degree where things were headed and, uh, you know, just not knowing everything, but feeling into the levels of uh, things are not the way they appear to be. And then, you know, here we are, that, that if things keep going as they are, my son will never know one modicum of the life that I've lived. Mm. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Tra traveling all over the world and having sure. access to a ton of direct lived experience, the ability to wander across the earth and uh you know i went to india eight times and i just i followed huh. my my bliss uh, it, extremely and he may just simply not have that kind of opportunity if we don't stand up and uh and, and claim our freedom uh lunderground is here and he said all this postmodern feminist language is totally alien to me i only know a two-parent family is the correct way to raise children so i don't know if you can relate to that mm. or, or speak to that at all well, you know, this is a big thing to unpack. Um, you know, I, I'll say that I, drawing from my experience, so like I said earlier on, I'm a filmmaker, and so I've been tracking a lot of um, edges of emergent culture. And uh, one film I've been working on now for five years is, um, it's about a community in Portugal called Tamera. And um, maybe you're familiar with them or not? No. No. Yeah, so they're basically a, a kind of, you know, a, a sort of activist, radical activist commune in Germany that started in the sort of late 70s, uh, like many, right, around that time. And many failed, actually, right? Many ended up collapsing because they couldn't figure out these questions about how to be together, right? Particularly right. around money, power, and sex, right? These are key areas which, you know, really make things tricky when you try to live together. And um, they managed to actually put these issues at the center of their community and and navigate through it. And so now they're, you know, 40 years on, um, they have elders that have been, you know, in this decades now, uh, and well, the, the younger generation has grown up there. And I'll say that they are so beyond um, social forms that, uh, you know, most would recognize in the modern culture, that a lot of the questions actually change, right? So 
again, like how to raise children, what is a, you know, how to support a, a deep relationship, all these things. So I will say that the, the correct way to raise children, say with two parents, I mean, all I'll say is I recognize now that that question typically comes from a particular cultural context. Right, meaning that um, if like, what are the alternatives? Right, we we would say probably in dominant culture, it's either maybe two parent or or single parent, or you know, like there's not really other options where we might say, so is it that or that? Right. Whereas at Tamara, they have structures where they literally have an entire village raise the children, so they have a, a kids village where you know a number of trusted adults will actually kind of be with and corral the children while they go through numerous stages of their educational process, as well as a kind of solidarity and support amongst the parents that largely is unknown, right, to most sort of modern culture. I think older people have, you know, they'll show stories of like, yeah, I used to just run down the street and go into my, you know, friend's house and the parents fed me. And, you know, these really kind of beautiful stories that feel very uncommon now. You know, when helicopter parents and the sort of blanket of fear is very common for parents not to feel that sense of trust with their neighbors. Whereas somebody like uh, in Tamara, right, they've done the work with each other, about 200 people total. But again, it's like now the questions completely change when you have a, really a level of trust amongst the adults and there's a certain degree of, you know, kind of a shared vision about what they're doing together. So I'll say certainly yes to the, to the question of, yeah, two parents typically is the best in the modern culture where the nuclear family is sort of the last bastion, right, of, of a kind of solid place to raise kids. And, you know, there's a lot of like challenges that come up with two parent families that are isolated from the wider community because a lot of the neuroses of the parents don't go... Uh, interrupted, right? They go just sort of like um, perpetuated against the children and others aren't actually able to kind of call them on it, right? Certainly not children because it's not their role. So again, they come with their own challenges as well. So anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Hello to uh, Aaron Beatty. He's been on this show as well. And he said that's called a tribe. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's actually, it's so bang on because the ingredients of a human being are not just the the addition of your mother's and your father's genetics and then they pass down to you and you're a person it's like no it, it really does take a village that's a that's a cliche for a reason mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's good and do you have a sense of the work that you're doing that it is your life purpose is it is it is it your calling yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I feel I knew pretty early on, like I was saying earlier with the filmmaking, um, probably, you know, my early 20s, right? Like, I mean, I took media studies in university and, and recognized the power of story again pretty early on. So I feel like, um, you know, the way I've tracked this now since, and maybe this is something that the listeners could could reflect upon, is that, you know, I do feel there's this relationship between one's own kind of idea about oneself like you know what's valuable to do the culture itself has certain programming and certain ideas about what is worth doing right um i did a film called sacred economics which is a short film with a fellow named charles eisenstein uh based on the same book and in that he shares about like the current economic system is based on a current uh, based on a story of, of you could call it a story of separation so like we are isolated individuals working for our own self-interest um and ultimately so the story goes right like that raises all boats, which is sort of the, the general um, uh, economic philosophy, right? Um, but then that also based is uh, a kind of a lack of the deep understanding of interdependence, right? In fact, like we're all connected, actually. And in, in from certain perspective, you, know, you go into like a Zen Buddhist side, you know, they say there is no self. It doesn't mean you don't exist. It just means you, if you try to find you and the boundaries of you, you realize, oh, wow, I'm actually connected to everything else. Like we're deeply relational. And so the question then becomes, you know, how are we being conditioned or, or what are the value systems that are 
um, sort of amplifying certain behaviors, right? Which aren't really human nature. They're just human nature responding to a specific system. And so uh, what I say that is because a lot of people, I think, have a certain calling, right, to do something that feels more like their, their thing, their dharmic work. And yet the system actually doesn't value a lot of that work right now. Exactly. Right. Like like it, it, it's more profitable to cut down an old growth forest and sell off the lumber than it is to preserve the, the old growth forest and keep it there for generations to come, because that's the economic you know, reality. Um, and in the same way, people are sort of do th- labor, right, which actually isn't that valuable to the planet on this time, but it's incentivized by an insane economic system. So I do think that there's a courage and it's kind of a savvy that people need in order to sort of follow their dharmic path despite the fact that the, you know, the, the sort of financial um, incentive may not be there for them or, you know, may not be there for some time. But as the culture begins to shift and the incentives begin to shift, we start to come in line with the, um, the, the actual incentives that actually work for life and, and work for each other. So, yeah, we're in this in-between state, which, you know, can be really uncomfortable, but it really asks a kind of courage. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And uh, so then what do you feel like is your current if you had to call it a a goal or a vision for your work that that you see yourself uh being part of of this movement or the or the creator of this movement what are what are you working towards Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm i'm really curious again from this perspective of working with memes so you might be familiar with you know memes i mean on the surface they they they're understood like you know, that funny cat video, you know, could be a meme or that yeah. like pop culture reference. Um, but the almost like a, I think it was um, the fellow, the God delusion or no, no, sorry, the selfish gene, Richard Dawkins. I think he might have coined memes or like the selfish gene, this whole language, which it maybe doesn't quite capture this sort of um, how ideas spread. But I mean, it might be helpful just to think of it that way that, you know, I really work at what I feel is the level of the mimetic. Right. Which is, again, what are the kind of, you can almost call them scaffoldings of consciousness that allow for possibilities to emerge. And because if people don't have, like, again, people may say, well, the way things are is, you know, not working that well. Um, You know, we have all these catastrophic climate collapse and all this kind of stuff, right? But they don't know where to put that energy. And I think in the absence of having kind of like imaginative futures that the energy could go into, we often regress, right, into former states that feel safer. Right. Because it's like, well, okay, you know, culturally, maybe this felt a little more safe, even if, you know, again, it maybe didn't work that well either. But at least it was, you know, kind of more known. It was less uncertain. And so, yeah, exactly. And and so my work really, I think, is about projecting out possibility like mimetic pathways by showing other examples of how it could be, whether it's sacred economics, whether it's Tamara and their community. So people can actually see, oh, wow, my life energy, which knows that what we're doing is not working can flow into possibility and we can build that to make it happen. Very good. And do you, do you see people living in community? Is that, is that your desire and your goal to have that kind of a structure where, where the children are raised by more than just their parents, that it's a whole group effort? Yeah. I mean, I think it's unrealistic for, for just everybody to head out to, you know, live in the country. Um, the country probably couldn't take it. Uh, uh, and at the same time, you know, there is a, it's a particularly modern, kind of bizarre situation when, you know, most people, particularly in like apartment blocks and things, may not know the person across the hallway, right? Like, I mean, I lived in the suburbs for a while again, and, you know, I knew a few neighbors, we tried to do potlucks occasionally, but, you know, by and large, I mean, people didn't need each other, right? Like we were able to exist somewhat independently and isolated and and in comforts, right? In a certain degree of comfort that 
it, again, you didn't need need each other in the way that you need each other by necessity in other life situations, right? Where the comfort isn't maybe so ready. And so there's this kind of like, I don't want to romanticize this idea of community. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of documented evidence to show that when calamity strikes, right? When hurricane or flood or fire, these kind of things, people will actually, by and large, um, be willing to step outside of you know their comforts because maybe they don't have them anymore and actually make connection. Right. And actually um, begin to like connect with their neighbors and say, hey, wow. And, you know, how do we help each other? And, you know, so human nature is like that. I actually believe like that innately we, we want to do good and be good to each other. But when we're bound by systems that actually, you know, create separation and scarcity, then other behaviors come out of that. And so is it realistic for people to all live in a village, you know, quote village? I don't think so. At the same time, I've begun to understand village is not so much a place like a physical place with you know a bunch of people kind of living together it could be but it is in fact it's a way of being together that that village in a sense is uh, a verb right to village is actually i think more accurate mm. so you know what does that mean to to be willing to make decisions and to act from that place right i'm still learning that but i think it's the only thing that is possible especially in high density areas right where it almost like interconnected bubbles of actual trust and solidarity amongst people. I mean, neighborhoods is kind of like that. But again, you know, it takes a lot of courage to be willing to step outside of your own bubble and uh, and make that connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a term freedom cell. I'm not sure who's using it. But uh, uh, it's something that is pointing towards that exact thing that like one of one of the problems that we're we're dealing with on, you know, having having a global agenda come our come our way and then some people think, oh, well, we all need to organize and unify and have the same voice. And it's, it's like, actually, that's not realistic. Maybe, maybe that is ide- ideal, but it's, that's, not, that's not the way that we're built. We're not built for centralized power. We're, we're built mm-hmm. for the opposite, decentralized, uh, yeah. gathering among people who, who have common, genuinely common interests. It's not academic. Like Culture isn't academic, just like languages. If you don't if you don't genuinely need it and put it to use, then it doesn't even really exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, going back to this this idea of story, right? So, you know, it's interesting to, to really think about um, what is a nation state, right? A nation state is, well, I mean, that's one way to say it. I would say no, it's that's a story. The legal, that's the legal structure of it, oh, a corporation. Okay. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, and a corporation is also a story, right? Like, what is what is the thing that is the continuation of of an idea or a, or a story um, like a nation state, maybe like a corporation, um, because all the people participating in it, it's like you can't find it, right? Like you can't point to the one person typically, even the person at the top, let's say if it's a corporation or the president, right? They aren't, they're not the thing, although somehow the thing keeps going, right, for a time until it doesn't. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that the idea that everybody is meant to agree, right, on something or or I guess have have like, can come to some kind of shared we is actually a bit of a stretch, right? Given, and not that that's even a problem, but like I said, you know, humans lived in smaller scale um, arrangements, right? Um, for most of human history. And so the nation state is actually a very interesting kind of recent phenomenon uh, and often actually brings people together who actually don't have that much in common. I mean, tragically in places like Middle East where lines were drawn among um, you know, ethnic lines that actually weren't at all accurate to the actual peoples that were there, right? And and that is a lot of other places. Africa is the same thing. Like 
peoples that actually were split off from each other that were actually a deep uh, the same peoples all of a sudden we're now in different nation states because of you know economics and all the rest power so i guess that's all i'm trying to say with this sense that um i think there's a kind of a desire to have a kind of shared understanding amongst the people over a wide area of of place and i you know even from canada let's speak that for a second like yeah like in some ways we have more in common with the people on the west coast than we do people in toronto right i mean i'm, I'm near vancouver I yeah, so 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 the bioregion actually makes a lot more sense to be a kind of unified understanding uh, versus um, these kind of artificial boundaries, which actually create a, a, sort of that artificial commonality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm exactly. I'm very very aware of that. That uh, we're all Canadians now. We're kind of locked in this country. I tend to have a, more in common with Americans. It's it's actually been more recent that I'm starting to connect with more Canadians out of some necessity, mm. not being able to go across the border as easily. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, although there's all, all of the virtual world is still available to us, but, uh, but thinking like, yeah, if there's going to be any connection, it's going to be with Canadians. Now they're starting to cut the, uh, or, or close the borders between provinces, of course. And, and in mm. a way, there's a strange favor to it if it weren't forced, but yeah, bringing us into our, our own villages and then even within that there's there is such a divide all of the people that i thought would be in my village uh 90 percent of them can't uh can't can't go there they can't they're not ready to take a veil down and see reality for what it is at this time they don't know what they're dealing with you know you were talking earlier about um what can force people into the 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 community cooperation and it's that they perceive a threat. So when the flood comes of the, the Red and the Assiniboine River and uh, everybody just naturally bands together and whoever is along the river gets helped by a whole lot of people. Like you're just driving by and you'll stop your car and you'll mm. start sandbagging for them. You don't even know who they yeah. are or whether they have money or the, whether they have your religion or whether they, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter at that point. Yeah. But right now we face an invisible enemy and it's you know so it, it the whole thing is very confusing we we are under enormous threats and i'm not i'm not fear porting here i'm just i'm just saying this is the reality of it but but it's it's not from what people think so they're they're responding to a threat that uh, doesn't really exist especially even statistically on paper by the powers that be right you go do the math at the website and you see how many people have been surviving this virus. Do you know? Do you know the number? Uh, I, I have percent? friends. I have friends have definitely gone down a lot of rabbit holes, and um, I understand though that yeah, like the you mean the amount of deaths per infections is it's, is it's the amount the, the amount of uh, survival per in, uh, uh, compared to infections. Do you, do you just uh -huh. uh, just out of curiosity, do you know that uh, that percent? I don't. Not offend. Take a wild guess. I'm just having fun with you here, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, what's the number again? Percentage of Infections versus survival. Yeah, people that live through it. Maybe ninety-five percent. Oh, very good. It's ninety-nine point nine seven. So you're much closer okay. than the average person will be guessing. People are saying fifty percent, sixty percent. So, so according to the, the the narrative out there, they're perceiving there to be uh, forty percent of the people are dying, right? And no, if you do again their math, I'm not. I'm not refuting any of their numbers whatsoever. I just go to their the CDC website and I'm looking at the published numbers and I do the simple little math equation. I'm scared because I think, oh, this is just going to show me. I know I'm mm -hmm. down a rabbit hole and I'm I've believed a, a lie. But no, you know, so so 
people are responding to this like it is some dangerous pandemic and it's not right mm. that one simple little bit of math can prove it so you know we got we got mind control going on here we've got we got people traumatized by fear mm. it's too late for them to understand a simple statistic in a way and it's throwing people together it's a very long way to get to this point but it's ending ending up throwing people together who might never otherwise unite but they're uniting over that one fact that they can do math or whatever mm. you know that's tongue in cheek mm -hmm. Uh, so it's fascinating that the culture that's being created right now is the product of all kinds of disnature. But will it, you know, if, if the natural laws prevail, then that that would be nice. Mm. It seems mm. like that's a good eventual outcome. Mm. Yeah, a lot of lot in there. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of an aside. You can tell what I'm up to in all my <laughs> not spare time. Sure. And um, so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I'm happy to maybe jump back to to, to masculinity, um, yeah, like yeah. as in within the context of, I mean, many of these themes that we're speaking to. Um, I mean, I, I think how I'm tracking based on my conversations too around, like sometimes there's this, you know, the crisis in masculinity and these kind of language gets brought out. And I, I believe what I'm tracking is that, or what's been most helpful uh, for me at least, is, you know, we're, we are under a, a shift from, uh, at least from the dominant culture, from... Uh, what's been really helpful for me as a lens is a book by Rianne Eisler um, called The Chalice and the Blade, which you may have read. Not that one, no. Okay, highly recommend it. I mean, she came out in like the late 80s, I think, early 90s. But in that book, what she talks about is she went back and tracked central, like, using a cultural lens on, on history. And what she brought forth was this ability to actually differentiate between this idea that um, the, that it's sort of men's, like patriarchy is a sort of, it's the inherent rule of men that's the problem, right, for men. And therefore, the current argument typically is, well, you know, there's too many men in power. Um, men need to be sort of knocked out and more women, which is, which is good in, in a general sense, I think, to have balance. But if the system doesn't change and just you just have women in the places of power that men were, then nothing changes, right? The system yeah, keeps, keeps, keeps going. And so I think what Rand Eisler did, which is really helpful, was she was able to separate what she calls dominator cultures from partnership cultures. So she uses a language very purposely. And what is helpful for me now in terms of how I'm tracking this masculine um, kind of transition is that um, a lot of men are conditioned into this culture, though, into to a dominator understanding of things, right? And so how that shows up is a certain degree of, you know, distrust or repression of emotions, you know, a certain degree of receptivity, um, intuition, all these things get sort of sidestepped, you know, and say, oh, those are, those are feminine, those are women, uh, a sort of prescriptive gender roles, right? Men all have to be this way, women all have to be this way. Those are not typical of a, a kind of general masculine rule but it's actually a dominator culture's role mm -hmm. and so we're shifting now to uh, we're meant to shift i think towards more of a culture of partnership of which has existed in different cultures in the past but they often are conquered by dominator cultures because they're the ones that come in with all the weapons and the willingness to conquer right so that's helpful for me because when i look to feminism um, oftentimes that can again it can be a really intractable kind of contentious um like nowhere to go within that argument because some people say well feminine they just hate men and men are saying i don't want to be more feminine like this is outrageous you know and it's missing i think the deeper lens that's actually being invited into it's what it's saying is it's being able to step away from dominator culture 
and then that asks very different ways of organizing our human society, how we relate to each other, you know, how we shift whose role is what, you know, what, what's work that, um, you know, maybe can, can be shared, you know, like all these different questions can actually step in. And it's not a threat to men in this case, right? Because it's not, it's not women taking power from men in a dominator culture, right? It's actually shifting into a very, an entirely different structure, um, which again, we don't have many examples of anymore because it's been so made subservient. Um, but the, the crystals are there and like amplify her for me and the rise of the feminine. Like that to me is what archetypally is what's happening. It's not men, women will be in charge over men, right? That's a sort of matriarchy, which Rian pointed out to me. She's like, that's actually another dominator culture. Matriarchy. Right yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Where she's like, no, no, no. What we're actually aiming at is partnership culture, which again is, is, a, is, um, it's a whole other way to imagine the possible futures. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, I'd love to unpack something that I've never done on this podcast before. And since the, the mythic masculine is your subject mm -hmm. to talk about what that is, because uh, I, when I studied in Indian at the, the masculine and the feminine archetypes were, uh, actually interpreted extremely differently. So I'm, I'm curious if this is in line with you at all. And uh, so so masculine was portrayed as the source of everything with actually no qualities, mm. right? It, mm -hmm. it was it was the place that everything came from, the invisible, unseen, unstruck sound. Mm. And then and then the feminine was everything that could be seen, tasted, touched, uh, known with the senses. It, everything manifest was considered mm -hmm. the feminine and the, the masculine was the source of everything manifest. So does that match at all with what you're talking about? Yeah, you know, it's interesting too, because obviously different cultures can bring different inflections. Um, I think obviously it also can be a challenge ever to kind of come up with a universal anything, you know, because again, that's part of a sort of monotheistic um, need to have everything reduced to the you know one thing. And at the same time, you know, certain similarities or certain patterns, I think are recognizable, certainly across cultures. When I hear you speak of that, you know, what comes to me is this may be the same understanding that uh, of this relationship between consciousness and matter, right? Yes. Because if consciousness is, is that pure, undifferentiated, um, almost like observer of, of that nothingness, nothing manifest, then in some ways, yes, I could see that that means that all matter, um, which is also the origin of the word mother, um, would come from, again, that un undifferentiated. I know that there's other, like in the Western, um, I think it was the Sumerian myth uh, of Marduk and Tiamat, that, that Tiamat is chaos herself, I mean, but is mother, is the kind of um, form ever-changing, you know, life, death, rebirth, um, energy. And so, uh, and again, I could see that being, of course, like that is the manifest, that is the, what we are, that is the embodiment. Um, and the, our own participation in that, of course, is our own life, death, and, and birth, and rebirth. Um, and then the consciousness is the sort of supreme in that sense, but that doesn't mean it's better than, right? It's just sort of the um, kind of the complementary as opposed to oppositional. And I think a lot of traditions, spiritual traditions, have turned that a little bit um, towards this idea of, you know, the consciousness itself is better. It's like transcending, right, the body. Exactly. And taken to the extreme, of course, in like Western um, Christian, for example, Christianity, often that becomes this split, right? The carnality, the embodiment, sexuality, all of that stuff is deemed negative and wrong and, you know, lower than and sinful. But the transcendent and the pure and all the rest, you know, is, is beautiful. Um, you know, just referring back to Rian again, she had this great link between how that whole idea of stripping away the two 
um, the two sides of that understanding, you know, matter and spirit, essentially means that as soon as you elevate, this is pure, this is beautiful, this is more holy, you generate a kind of fixation and a taboo in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So essentially you generate pornography. Like um, a fetish. Exactly. Yeah, because because you've stripped them away from each other. But if they're unified, then there's no charge anymore. You know, I remember Osho had this great quote in one of his books. He said something like this whole idea. I think he was speaking a little bit to it and kind of making fun of it. But he was saying, you know, I'm going to he's like, I'm going to make a bunch of money. I'm going to uh, I'm going to go out to the trees, you know, in the forest and I'm going to cover them up and then I'm going to shoot tree porn and then I'm going to you know, sell books with tree pornography. But, you know, he was, again, poking fun at that idea that you you by kind of hiding it and making it, you know, wrong or taboo or hidden, then you end up generating a, um, an opposite energy towards, uh, which of course, you know, that resolved kind of like really unfortunately in the witch burnings um, for many years, uh, you know, within the, the Western um, religious backlash on that. And of course, it only really more recently in the last, you know, couple decades has uh, there been this reclamation of the power of the carnality of sexuality as also pure. You know, um, a recent author I interviewed, she said, sexuality is a way of knowing, right? It's a way of knowing the world, um, which is a very different lens than, you know, typically what we're taught or not taught, right, in, in this culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's brilliant, actually, because when I got sick with cancer, it was, uh, I found my lump in my neck on my very last mm -hmm. trip to India of, of eight. And it's exactly what you say that, uh, you know, everything from here down was considered to be low class. It's there, it needs to be maintained uh, and dragged along for the enlightenment journey. But but it really, this is, this is the part that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so all it means is that I suppressed everything from here down. Yeah. And there's a very high cost to that. Yeah. Right? That contributed to me losing my life and being diagnosed with a stage four lymphoma. Huh. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the only cause, but it was definitely part of it because it was yeah. it was extremely, um, uh, you know, it, it's hard to turn away the the authority, the so-called authority of that. But the, sure. the reclamation of wholeness is like to me, that's that's been the journey ever since to to uh, honor and and live through all of my parts. God didn't seem to didn't God didn't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, didn't Beautiful. didn't give you sexuality just so that you can go and feel bad about it and suppress it. And, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and then there's also truth in in the fact that when, and I think it's actually coming right through this fetish thing that you're talking about. It's once once there is a fetish, then it it uh, it starts to foster the acting out the the exploring in a way that feels like you're doing something wrong, which is a certain attraction of its own. I don't know if you can yeah. speak to that and say it better than I just did. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, maybe I'll relate it to men's experience. I mean, you know, if you, if you talk to most men, I mean, there's an epidemic of pornography addiction. Thank you. I was going to bring this up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and again, one could say, well, why is that? You know, is it just men are weak and, you know, like, uh, or is there something else going on? And, mm. You know, my take on it is that, I mean, one, uh, if we're just talking biochemically, that, you know, humans were not built to have as much stimulation as is possible, you know, at their fingertips all the time, broadband, you know, um, in, in 4K, right? Like, you know, humans are just not actually built to withstand that level of excitation, for one. So in some sense, you know, the technology has outpaced a kind of human scaled relationship to it. Um, if there, if that even was ever possible. So I'll just say biochemically, you know, it's, the deck is stacked against men for sure. It is a level of uh, 
kind of like addiction, right? That is deeply kind of like, it's hard to withstand for through willpower alone, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. But then the other thing I'd say is that, you know, underneath that as well, again, represents this kind of the separation between pure and, you know, um, good, and then, you know, carnal, carnal and sinful and, and bad. And oftentimes, you know, I remember this even as a teenager where um, I had, you know, there was a clear understanding, right? There was a girl that you would take home to your parents, right? And then there was the girl that, you know, was on your computer screen at night, you know, when everybody else went to bed. Um, and that, that separation feels like kind of paradoxical, right? It was like, well, why is, you know, the, the girlfriend that you're willing to show your parents, um, but you're just as attracted, if not more, to the one in the shadow, you know, on your computer screen at night in a different way. And that separation is what conjures that, you know, that that kind of these these two that don't meet, right? And I think women experience this because they often, women, women report to me, right? They say, well, yeah, you know what? Um, ever since, you know, I first became sexual, I was like, I recognize, okay, I have to portray myself a certain way or I'll be deemed, you know, a slut or easy or, you know, all those other slanders, right? That are against female sexuality. And they recognize, they're like, okay, I have to be, mythically speaking, I have to be Eve, you know, on the surface. And then Lilith, you know, is hidden away and I can't, I can't be both. Right. I mean, thankfully that's been shifting Ricardo, as women are reclaiming their, their sexual potency, their power, um, that those two are now coming back together. And that's confronting with men though as well. Right. Because it actually asks the capacity to unify those two as well. Right. That, that the sin and the dirty and the, you know, shadow, that whole projection story is really the own projection on their own sexuality right? That it's sinful, that it's not okay, that it's wrong, all that stuff. And so it asks a lot of men, yeah, to be able to, to make that link. Um, and I will say, you know, culturally at large, this draw towards this, you know, pornographic depictions, I think are actually a deep longing for intimacy, right? Of which pornography cannot meet, um, it, that it is not capable of actually meeting the deeper longing for intimacy that I think men actually crave, nor do men actually know that often, you know, when they're seeking this sort of short-term gratification because they feel a lot of shame around it or because, you know, it's not, they can't really talk about it. Um, they have their own inner critic, right? The inner judge, depending if they've been raised with a certain, you know, Christian uh, or religious upbringing that they're not even supposed to have these thoughts, right? Or they're wrong. So yeah, there's a tremendous amount of kind of unpacking and healing and bringing those places together um, and the willingness to seek intimacy in ways that actually satiates that deeper longing. And then for me, like that that draw towards this kind of short-term fix, you know, pornographic thing, it's just, it doesn't really have any sway anymore. You know, it's just kind of like, it doesn't, it's not about demonizing it and saying it's wrong, but it's actually creating the conditions whereby you don't look for it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a much more uh, kind way. It's not an act of willpower to rip mm -hmm. your senses away from the thing it hungers. And I like your point also about, um, you know, it, it really truly is a desire for intimacy. And it's just got so, of course, it completely engineered. Like the, the mm -hmm. Internet was, was uh, you know, some, some people's take is that the Internet was actually uh, based on pornography. Like that was the first the whole mm. purpose of creating the internet was to make uh, pornography widely accessible like that, mm. right? So it was an engineering thing. They knew what they were doing. People, people often think that the pornography industry is driven by all the consumers, but I, I don't believe that at all. I believe it, it was constructed as a way to take strong men down and to capitalize on that hunger for intimacy 
that is um, that you can always satisfy. The, I write about this in my book. The the concept of uh, of pseudo love, mm-hmm. right? So if you can't yeah. get real love, you're gonna go for fake love. Yeah. And because there's no substance, there's no food in fake love. It creates more emptiness every time you you have it. It creates more emptiness and more of a vacuum and more of a need. And then your senses, like you said. They get so, because it's not natural to be overstimulated like that, the senses actually have to shut down, mm-hmm. right? Like I dated somebody that had uh, come for, he was like a pornography addiction castaway and he had mm. stopped the addiction by willpower, but he had never, you know, um, I don't know if there's a, there's probably a term for it, but like coming back to reality and uh, mm-hmm. a, a natural sensitivity and, and where, where a thought can be the, the spark of, yeah. of a, a whole activation of your body and it's like it, it was just not like he had been damaged i would say he'd been damaged just not to criticize him but yeah. uh you know so he he couldn't go back there and it and it, it didn't work as a result it was just it was just literally not possible mm-hmm. yeah. um how, how do people undo that do you have any suggestions well i mean yeah i mean there's two i mean there's sort of the the practical you know kind of individual possibilities and then there's the more cultural and I was speaking a little bit to the cultural side with the mythology of the culture, right? That separates these two things. Um, and then the the taboo and the draw towards it now becomes quite strong. And so part of the cultural um, necessity is to bring these elements together again, that, you know, there is no good and bad around sexuality. I mean, in a healthy way, in a, in a, that it's, it is fundamentally good, but it is the casting it aside and judging it as wrong that creates these conditions, these shadowy conditions where it actually becomes harmful. Um, but I'd say for, for men, let's say specifically, I mean, you know, like I said, um, when, when stimu- when the senses have been overstimulated, yeah, you can either go two directions, right? You can begin to slow down and sort of d- develop more sensitivity or uh, t- unfortunately what happens, right, is men can amp it up, right? Which is actually why, you know, when you don't feel much anymore, the only thing that feels like it makes sense is to have more of it right and so you kind of get in this addiction sort of exponential game or like arms race in a way right and so and then there's crashing and then you know kind of finding your way back and all that but i would say that yeah there's a need to create um spaces where men can both talk about this right in a in a transparent way um and also i think to again to develop capacity for intimacy again right which does require a certain kind of self-awareness a certain slowness um a certain developing of trust, you know, I mean, again, depending on what their circles are with other, you know, relationships or their partner, because oftentimes, right, they fear bringing it to them because of the judgment and the shame that they get, you know, um, doused in um, when they are transparent about it. Um, But I think, again, it's developing the sensitivity and the slowness and the capacity for intimacy to reroute those patterns, right, Um, that I think will, they can provide a way back, which doesn't rely on, again, more self-shame, more condemnation right about trying to force oneself to not participate which again going back to that idea of dominator culture often that's all that a dominator culture knows right is how to apply force to get change to happen but this is the exact opposite it's about building relationship it's about making contact with those places and like welcoming them back home Mm, what amazing insight that's so good i love Mm. that so then um I'm curious if, do, like, do you help men in, in the way, like, I know you, you've, you're out there with your podcast. Let me actually put your uh, website up so people can see sure. how and where to find you. And let's see if I can make this one bigger. Um, there. 
Awesome. So yeah, this is your this is your website. Let me see. I have to yeah. go to the funny. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's see. The, I zoom out a little bit there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, beautiful website by the way. I I, I love it. I've I've caught uh, a handful, maybe five or so of your podcasts. They're excellent. Awesome. The conversations are very deep. Thank you. And uh, yeah, the combination of mythology, culture, emerging masculinities is. Uh, is it such a timely thing right now mm. when the dominator culture, this is a great concept you've introduced to, mm -hmm. to name it as such, has has now reintroduced feminism as just another way to dominate over. Mm -hmm. And you can see that's exactly how it's playing out. That's that's mm -hmm. in fact the, the theme of the King Hero came about because, you know, all my life I have actually been that much more masculine figure. Mm. And, and been the leader and had people follow me and, you know, in relationships. I've, I was talking about this yesterday. I, I interviewed a, a fellow from the Proud Boys. Are you familiar with that organization? Oh, I mean, only from Trump kind of giving him a shout out on the yes, debate. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, if you if you Google the Proud Boys, it's going to call them an anti, uh, pardon me, a fascist anti, um, not anti, but it's the white supremacist, fa fascist white supremacist organization. And it's actually quite quite not true. That's that's just, of course, when when they're a force, they they come up against Antifa in in Portland and get the mention from the the president. Then uh, of course they want to smash them, right? It's it's a fascinating mm. thing, when really mm. their values are about family and about helping strong men be stronger and uh, causing no aggression, but never standing down. Also, mm. never never letting themselves be attacked. Mm. Uh, so that's something that's that's very powerful, and um, you know we need to hear this because of that because of that tendency to to dominate, and that doesn't come into true partnership. To me, the mm -hmm. most powerful natural resource is the relationship between men and women, and and mm. within that, the the your own masculine and feminine inside yourself. Once mm -hmm. once that starts to gel, so I don't know if that that's something that we could talk about before we start to uh, close sure. the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I I just think I hear the um, like the challenge that men have often too when they maybe are are asked to be different or to be invited into perhaps places that they're less they're I mean often less comfortable in. Right. I mean, I'll just speak personally that. You know, for the longest time, um, I didn't trust emotions. <laughs> like, I'll just say it bluntly like that. That, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because again, emotions felt weak. They felt um, un, like not in control. They felt like um, I, yeah, I was sort of giving away power, actually. Right. And it's, for example, more recently, I've done work uh, also with other men who I, I considered to be much more adepts at recognizing that emotions are actually an intelligence, mm -hmm. right? That emotions have information. And, and also a kind of um, uh, expression in the body that actually allow for energy to pass through you and to transmute in, in powerful ways. And uh, for example, anger is a, an extremely powerful emotion for setting boundaries, right? For, for creating a kind of, for limit, you know, to, to confront when necessary. But that's not the same as rage, right? For example, rage is actually um, a kind of the inability to actually be with anger. And so it transmutes into hostility or something else. Uh, and even like sadness, right? Oftentimes mixing feelings like m sadness and fear can often be uh, experienced as depression, right? 
and a lot of people are into, you know depressed men there's an epidemic right of depression as well but it's really the incapacity to just allow the feelings to be felt right um because they have their intelligence and if they move through you then they're gone right that's the any kid does this right like they'll be crying one moment and then all of a sudden they'll be like totally happy so um the suppression of those and the expression of them leads to all of this dysfunction um when you know as a kind of general sense of a more holistic experience of being human right like a lot of men this is actually a really great place to explore and to integrate um and it's not going to make them weaker it's actually going to make them more powerful because they'll be in relationship to all these different parts of themselves so again i guess i'm saying that you know that this really is the threshold that i think a lot of men are being asked into and and it feels fearful and threatening because again it's asking maybe unfamiliar ways to be right um and it's sort of critiqued as often well they just want me to let go of my manhood or something right but again what this is doing it's expanding um the capacity and the the depth of actually what that might mean um which is a is is a, you know it's a heroic journey for every man to go through mm -hmm. absolutely yep very wise i love that it's uh mm. it, it, we're taking we're talking slightly different language but it's exactly the same thing that uh that the emotion, when you when you look deeply into, when you do a very deep inquiry and let go of uh, wanting to be separate from it, which on the surface, I, I use the analogy, or I have used, especially in my, my more, um, when I was more identified with mermaids and talking about mermaids, mm. and you'll see the water element around here. That's a, sure. there's a whole mythology behind that. But uh, the, you know, so if you're on the surface of the water and there's a storm, you're being like smashed and crashed. The waves are like very dramatic. The experience is huge churning and a, kind of a violent experience. Mm -hmm. But if you let yourself go underneath the water, it's the very same water. It's the very same storm, but mm -hmm. it's much more gentle. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it, being immersed in it, you're, you're lost in it. You're totally uh, contained by it. You're it for a time but it's manageable you're because you're because you're it actually that it's not you and that separation which probably creates some kind of a fetish with mm. uh, either feeling or not feeling and then and then um if you if you have that wherewithal like you said to go all the way through it you see you end up seeing the illusion of it that it actually was a kind of intelligence to use your language mm. uh, but if you don't go through it it's mm -hmm. not it's not intelligence it's 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 literally going to call in say it's say it's fear it's going to call in what you're afraid of mm -hmm. inviting you that was for me i was afraid to get sick and die and there i was a sick person dying yeah so i had yep. to i had to go through the fire of that fear mm -hmm. and face death in a way that uh, i never expected to have to we're all going to have to do that it's not unique but i just did it maybe a little bit earlier mm -hmm. on in my life and the Powerful. job's not done, but sure. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it is it is quite a, a natural resource. And then you look behind you, and after you after you let something go, and you go like, wow, it's not even there, right? Mm -hmm. What what appeared to be this this thing that that was so formidable wasn't even uh, what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like the allowance, the allowance, I think, um, allows it to pass, and then you know you truly actually gain. You, you do integrate that that intelligence into your relationship with it in the future as well, right? It becomes more known, then you become more skillful in moving through these states. That's beautiful, exactly. And like you said, if you suppress it, it becomes a monster. It becomes your enemy. Yeah. And uh, and you're going to have to fight with it until it gets your attention enough when you when you realize, okay, we're going head to head. I'm I'm actually going in now. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
Yeah. yeah. So it was a big flip for me. I worked for women for uh, almost exclusively for 15 years and uh, wow. got on my soapbox and said that women should take over the world and men were responsible for everything wrong in the hmm. world. And uh, I'm still I still very much work with women to help them to, um, you know, do do the inner work, which is much easier for them and then get out into the world, which is much harder yeah. And now and now working for men, it's it's the mirror image to help them do that inward journey so that if they want to become a greater and greater influence and, and be a movement maker and a leader and, and an entrepreneur, then they they have to do some of that inner work in order so that the masculine and feminine could could truly grow together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. That's awesome. Uh, any any questions from the chat? Thanks. I've I've seen some really good comments from you. Got you. I have a very deep audience. They uh, they they get. Vonich said uh, sure. that is pathos leading psyche. So those are two of the the mythological characters. Is there anything that you would want to say about that? Hmm. Um. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a kind of a neat look at things as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the tale of Eros and Psyche, which is a much longer longer tale. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, that I I just think that that. These are part of what is encoded in stories, right? That there's a capacity to actually begin to see patterns or relationships told through these characters, right? Um, but that they reveal actually these really deep relationships. Um, you know, again, I'm thinking of an Eros and Psyche's child was hedone, right? Which is actually where we get hedonism. Ah, yes. One of the right? archetypes in my book. Yes. Yeah. But it's fascinating when you actually think about hedonism as it's typically talked about, right? Is this kind of wild debauchery right negative. whereas yeah. yeah negative thing whereas within the tale you're like oh my god this is so fascinating you know the eros and psyche the unification of those two lead to uh hedon hedonism but actually which is the unification of soul and spirit or i mean soul and eros it's like that's incredible right um to have that 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 that's actually the story um and so yeah i just think it's so powerful to begin to to map those those myths into our capacity to yeah open a very different understanding about these energies and, and their role. Nice, nice. I would love to send you a copy of my book. We have so much in common. I'd be, I'd be cool. very curious to hear because I write about, I did dedicated a whole chapter to the hedonist. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, awesome. as, a, as a path on the hero's journey because life, mm. and that, that's one of the things that's happening to humanity on the whole right now is that the quality of life is, has, is being taken and people are all, oh, think it, it's so temporary and they're just going to, you know, we're going to go back to some, normal life, although they kept promising us practically from day one before there was mm. any knowledge that we had a new normal. And uh, and it really is about quality of life, enjoyment, like when, when you can just uh, sit in a cafe and look face to face with somebody and be close and cuddle up with them over a, a special coffee and have this sensual experience of life, uh, to be able to hug and kiss in, in, in public and all of those things that make worth, uh, life worth living. Mm-hmm. And uh, to take that away from us is, uh, to me, no mistake whatsoever. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, more, I mean, more to say, too. But, uh, yeah, I got my eye on the time, too. And I'm, okay. How much time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no problem. I, was, I feel like we're starting to sure. wind up as well. And sure. uh, please, please do visit Mr. Um, uh, McKenzie's website on yeah. the Mythic Masculine. Check out his podcasts. Anything else you want to share about what, what uh, people could take you up on? There's, there, I know you can sign up for your newsletter here, which I'm a yeah. member of. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, just, uh, you know, I really like people to jump in and, and find the conversations 
you know, often I find too that um, the perspectives that actually don't necessarily talk directly about masculinity up front all of a sudden end up being very much about masculinity uh, by the time we get to the end. So I, I really appreciate that kind of spiral capacity. Uh, as well, if people want to see my films, of which span, you know, a good 13 years now, um, around place, things like Burning Man and Sacred Economics and Amplify Her, uh, they can check out ianmack.com, I-A-N-M-A-C-K.com. And most of them are available. Yeah, most of them are available online there to, to check out. Okay. Give me one second. I'll put a banner up for that. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, so, Mike. <laughs> so uh, can you say it again, Ian Mack? Yeah, I-A-N-M-A-C-K.com. In case you want to go to a different yeah, website, yeah, yeah, thanks. Very good. All right. Well, it's been a serious pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for coming. If you would uh, again want to take Ian up on more of his work, visit his two websites, mythic, themythicmasculine.com and ianmack.com. And if yeah. you're interested in my work as well, or uh, my book, or the possibility of doing a King Heroes archetype quiz, or a Merpreneur's Journey archetype quiz as well. You can visit my website and in 10 minutes learn where you are on your path of purpose. I've had amazing feedback about my book. If with your permission, Ian, I will send you a copy and uh, maybe sure. I'll, I'll fight my way onto your podcast one day <laughs> to talk yeah, about that because it's a it is an ongoing theme. I didn't even know before I wrote the book that, that I was going to be doing that, weaving the masculine and the feminine because I saw how the archetypes mm. uh, really are a mirror image of each other. They're not the same, but they're working together and they both have to be represented in that partner kind of way that you were talking yeah. about. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, so uh, thank you very much, everybody. I'm going to be back on Friday with uh, Mr. Bernard Gunter talking about per piercing the veil of reality. So I look forward to cool. seeing you on uh, 12 noon on Friday as well. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been a, an absolute pleasure to get to know you and your work. Mm. Thank you, Beth. Okay, my pleasure. Bye, everyone. Have a great rest of your day and uh, stay stay. Same. I, I never stay, say stay safe anymore. Stay mm -hmm. sane. Keep your wits about you. <laughs> okay. yeah. and you're getting some great feedback. Okay. okay. Bye for now, you guys.